Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for giving us a listen today. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And our website has show notes and past episodes. Of course, you should be subscribing. And you can contact us or leave comments via the website, too. It's thenexttrack.com. This is episode number 114 of The Next Track, and today we are really happy to welcome renowned and well-regarded saxophonist, flautist, sideman, frontman, band leader, ambiotronicist. We'll delve into that. Theo Travis is our guest today. Theo, it's great to meet you, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Great to, great to be here. Really uh, excited to be here with everyone. Theo, we wanted to get you on the show because you recently released some new apps, and we like apps. We like apps that make music. We like apps that, that are generative music and, and random music and all that. You released three apps that are called Travis and Fripp, one, two, and three. Very catchy titles for the apps. Um, they were developed by Peter Chilvers, who was a guest on the show last year. He also made Brian Eno's Reflection app. There'll be a link in the show notes. Doug and I have been listening to these apps now for about 10 days. This is just fascinating music. What gave you the idea to turn this music into apps? I think the, the original, I was just trying to trace back where the source of the idea came from. And I think it was actually Peter Chilvers. Um, I was have been recording quite a lot with Robert Fripp, as you know. And I think, it, and I'm a friend of Peter's. We've done concerts together. We've played together. I'm on his. We've known each other a long time. And I was contacting him about something else. I can't even remember what it was now. And I said to Peter, um, "What about?" Because I'd done um, various sort of combinations of Travis Fripp things, I wrote to me and said, "Would would do you think Brian Eno would be interested in doing a remix project like the sort of uh, Bill Laswell Panthalassa revisited, reimagined idea?" Because I thought the idea of a Travis Fripp with Brian Eno kind of reimagining it would be really exciting. Um, and he said, "Brian's a bit busy with all the ten million things that Brian Eno does." Yeah. But and I've even found the email. Peter said to me, "Would you have any interest?" in having me create an iPhone, iPad app that created a new random remix from the samples differently each time it's played. Not quite like Bloom, the one he did with Brian, um, but something that would be interesting and different and would obviously have Robert involved and the, the music of Travis and Fripp. So I had a thought, think about this for about three seconds and said, yes, that would be great. Love the idea. And the next time I met up with Robert Fripp, I suggested the idea. I explained about Peter and obviously he knows, you know, Brian's various things and he knew about Bloom um, and Robert was interested in the idea. And uh, that was kind of the beginnings of the project. That was about two and a half years ago, I have to say. Um, and it's sort of taken various paths and, you know, different courses to get from there to here. But that was the original idea. It was kind of Peter kind of chiming with I couldn't do that, but I could do this. And what do you think of that? And kind of from there, it was uh, it was quite a long process, but that was that was the birth of it. So we need to point out that as Travis and Fripp, you have been performing with Robert Fripp for a number of years, more than 10, 15 years even. Yeah, we started um, beginning of 2007. I think we first recorded January 2007. Uh, we had I had a day at his studio in in Wiltshire, uh, in England, and he was 
basically recording some soundscapes for an album I did called Double Talk, um, which he did beautifully, and he did it very quickly. And then when he'd recorded enough soundscapes that we needed for the album, I, I whipped my flute out and said, well, we've got some spare time. What about if we do some improv, improv stuff, some improvising? And I'd also brought a load of cakes because <laughs> at that time he loved his <laughs> cakes. <laughs> so, so, um, so we did. We did exactly that. We got the flute out. I got my pedals out. We did some completely free improvising. And amazingly, there was enough on that short improv session for the whole of the Thread album, which was the first total uh, Travis and Fripp release that we did. So you just sat down, whipped out your flute and got the cakes and recorded an album without even planning to make an album. Correct. That's great because you don't have the pressure of making an album then. No, no. It was, it was, it was very fast because, as I say, we got a whole album done as well as the stuff for the Double Talk album. But the interesting thing was it got to about two o'clock. We'd only been playing for like two, two and a half hours or something. I said, oh, do you want to have a break? And do you want to have some, maybe we'll have some tea and some cakes. And he said, ah, when we have cakes... That's the end of the recording. <laughs> so I said, oh, maybe we'll do a bit more, then we'll have the cakes. <laughs> so if you released a number of albums, and just this week or last week, you released Between the Silence, which is a 3D set of live recordings. I'll link in the show notes. It's um, available from... Panagyric, it's pronounced. They're the label that does all the new King Crimson stuff. And uh, it's available from them or DGM Live or my website, or I think probably Amazon as well these days. So, But that's, yeah, that's three distinct concerts. And I must say that at ten pounds for a three CD set, how can you not buy it? <laughs> yeah, your listeners. It's true. When when you look at what CDs cost, I mean, I'm delighted to be able to buy three CDs at that price instead of you earning two tenths of a pence for every time I stream a track on you know Spotify or Apple Music. Absolutely. And to be honest, if I earned two tenths of a pence on each stream, I'd be doing quite well. It's more like two tenths <laughs> of a pence for each thousand. It's. Uh... Yeah, I know. No, that's that's another topic. Discussion. We have discussed that. Yeah. So let's talk about this. I've been going through some of your albums. I'm sorry, I've been streaming some of them on Apple Music to get a good idea of the wide variety of music. And the one that I really like a lot is called Slow Life. And I found out that you play your flutes with loops and you call this ambitronics. Where did you get that name from? <laughs> <laughs> you had that question prepared, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you can probably guess one of the ideas where it came from. But there was a thinking behind it. Well, you need to say, because I think some of our listeners may never have heard of the original version of that. Okay. So I was aware of Frippertronics uh, from you know from way back with what Robert Fripp has done with his uh, Revox machines and the sound. He you know worked uh, together with, obviously, Brian Eno in the 70s and the No Pussyfooting and Evening Star, etc. So the, the thinking was... A kind of similar starting place. So the idea was, um, I actually borrowed the particular pedals I was using from a guitarist friend just to try it out. And this is whatever, 15 years ago or something, just to try the idea out of putting flutes through a looping pedal. And immediately I kind of came across this sound. It was quite interesting because at the time, the particular pedal I was using, it was like you're not allowed to put a microphone through. It's only for putting a sort of guitar. But I did all the things that you're not supposed to do. And you know what? I really like the sound. So that was kind of the beginning. So but what was exciting for me was as a single line player, like a flute player, we can't play chords like a guitar or piano. Yeah. So as a single line player, to start to be able to play like chords and evolving soundscapes, um, it suddenly made a whole new canvas, which I could make music on. 
And as I say, an unaccompanied flute player, to me, not very interesting. But if you could start making these kind of long, you know, interesting, you know, woven soundscapes, it started to be more interesting. Um, um, I think why I called it ambitronics was because I was using electronics to make a kind of ambient texture or tapestry. But at the same time, I could apply a lot of my harmonic thinking that I use in my kind of jazz world, because I do a lot of jazz stuff, uh, kind of quite involved harmonic thinking, applying to these layers of long single flute notes. So, for example, I might set up a chord of three different notes, which will make a nice chord. But then by using um, maybe the flute through an octave pedal, so I get that really low, deep sound, I can put a different bass note under different parts of the chord and I can start to create chord sequences and harmonic shapes through the combination of the single flute and the pedals and the harmonic thinking. Um, so it was kind of more than just a flute and a load of loops. It was kind of a whole kind of harmonic approach. Um, and I could make all sorts of particular phrasings and textures, which I started to do and, and you know, started really with that Slow Life album. So it felt like a, felt like a, a bigger thing than just sort of experimenting with a, with a looping pedal. And also I particularly liked the alto. The alto flute is lower than a normal concert flute. It's, it's higher than a bass flute, which is like the bottom one, but it's lower than the concert flute. And it's got that kind of slightly deep, more mysterious sound. And so I kind of like that atmosphere, a bit more mysterious, a bit more, uh, not subterranean, but kind of underneath, really, than kind of being right in your ear and right up, up it, top. It seems like it adds a, a nice atmosphere. There's a sort of an airy, yeah. breathy sound that it seems to provide. Absolutely. There's an airy, breathy sound. There's a kind of rich depth to it. Yeah. So I kind of particularly honed, honed in on the kind of layered alto flute sound and then thinking about you know, whole pieces I could make using these textures and different approaches to um, how to make these textures with the you know, electronic pedals and the harmonic thinking and the alto flute. So, you know, originally I just kind of dived in with my eyes closed and sort of came across something. And since then, you know, I, I've been doing, <laughs> I've been applying it to almost everything I've done. So that was sort of the early 2000s. A couple of years later, I was actually on a, a David Sylvian session for his Nine Horses album. We did all the tracks he wanted to do, and that was a real treat as well. And there was, again, we got it done quickly. And I said, you know what? Can I try this? <laughs> Can I try this thing? I've got these pedals. So I whipped them out, and he like really dug it. And so we ended up using it on quite a few tracks on that Nine Horses album. Uh, and again, in Soft Machine, I bring it out and do that. And Basically, the response is usually positive, so I just kind of keep bringing it out. So on Slow Life, what you're, what you're talking about with the ambitronics is you're doing this in real time as opposed to recording one thing and then overdubbing it. Is that correct? That is totally correct. It's all in real time. That whole album was done in real time in about half a day. <laughs> uh, there, were wow. some, there were some thoughts as to the kind of music pictures I was making, but totally. There is no studio overdub. There are no studio overdubs on that album at all. It's, and, and the interesting thing about that is um, because I'm basically adding layers each time, it's got this kind of textural build to it. Yeah, this accretion layer after layer as it goes through the loop and it comes back and then there's a little bit. It's kind of like 
you're 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 painting in a way and you're painting more layers on each time exactly exactly and because of that it kind of imposes a sort of discipline to the creation of the music because when you're overdubbing the studio you can add more here you can have more at the beginning more at the end whereas you know you can take stuff away whereas on this particular pedal first of all you couldn't take stuff away and secondly i can i can kind of play on top of the loops or i can add more layers to the loops but it's kind of one direction it gets bigger so the tracks grow throughout each track there's no kind of tracks that go start big and get smaller and smaller and that discipline itself i enjoyed when you do your pieces, you're you're the person that's creating it and manuf manufacturing, if you will, the yeah. the sound. But in this app, you've you've combined something that you've created in one context, and it's layered with something that somebody else has created yeah. in some other context. So you're taking your your basic idea of layering, yes, and then taking two contextual ideas and layering those. Of course, it's like happenstance well, and Robert or chance. Fripp is playing his own loops and layering as well. Right, right. So you've got two sets of layers that layer over each other, yet at random, and it works wonderfully. It really does. It's amazing, isn't um, it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there were certain levels of unknownness that went on during the development. And, of course, the other quite interesting thing is some of this was live, some of it was in the studio, some of it was in 2009, some of it was in 2018, and they can just kind of pop up together at, in different times and different combinations. Sometimes when I was developing, I'd look at the app and I'd see, you know, a studio 2018 thing by Robert and a live thing in a church in 2009. And these, it's like clouds that kind of float past each other. Frank Zappa record, would record that way. He would take, for instance, the rhythm section from one time and place and then right. put a guitar solo on it from another yeah. time and place yeah. and just see how it worked out. And I mean, the stuff he released sounds interesting, but this is yeah. a whole, this is a, a higher level than that because that's manufactured intentionally. But your, this randomness, I think, adds a, yeah. an an amazement factor. Well, I'm very pleased. I'm pleased that you like it like that. It was, as I say, it was a bit of a voyage into the unknown and I didn't always know. And we had to test it, beta test it quite a bit to see if things did work or if they didn't work. In fact, one interesting one thing you might find interesting is when I was originally talking to Robert about which clips to use of his and of mine, um, um, I have some Frippertronics from the late 70s recordings. And I did an album called Follow on which there's one track or uh, one track or two tracks in which we use some of uh, Robert's Frippertronics from 1979 with some overdubbed layered flutes. And it works I think well on that album and I asked Robert the what he thought of the idea of on one one of the apps using some frippertronic loops from the late 70s mixed with the, the contemporary flute loops and we kind of hummed and hard about it and in the end we kind of agreed that there were two two different worlds um, and although this, as I say, they come different years, different times, different content. Suddenly, if you had a different sound from a different era, almost, we thought that would be too far apart. And so that was kind of one step too far. We, we decided that anyway. This, although they are, as I say, different years, different contexts, they do kind of blend together, um, hopefully as a, as a kind of, you know, as a kind of unity. It's true that the early Frippertronics, is, is it the album Let the Power Fall? Yeah. It has a different intentionality to the music from this. 
There's a different intentionality. It's a whole different process. It's a different sound. It's a very, you know, people that are into, you know, the Robert Fripp thing know that sound of Frippertronics yeah. instantly. It's a yeah. different sound. It's an analog sound. It's a tape recorder sound. It's a different guitar sound. You know, it's, it, it is textural, but it's different textural. It's got a different feel to it. And so suddenly, you know, so to suddenly have that with something that's, you know, 2010, 2018 or whatever, you know, it can feel a little bit, a little bit too far in a way. Well, we, we felt that, especially if things are coming in and out randomly, you kind right. of want it to feel homogenous. Right. Um, one of those tracks might work with a specific track of yours, but may not work yeah. with all of them. And, and one of the, exactly. one of the things you need in these apps is that every pair of tracks works well together. Exactly. And there was quite a bit of beta testing to check that things didn't yeah. work. The one thing that I find interesting about all three of the apps, and by all means, don't buy one app, buy all three, buy the bundle, is that there doesn't seem to be any repetition. Doug and I were talking before we started recording about how, as we're listening to it, there seems to be this, with Reflection, um, the Eno app, you hear the same themes come back over and over. Over time, you're listening to it for 45 minutes. With your apps, obviously, there are different parts. It gets to a point and it stops and it starts up. But I never get the feeling that I've heard the same thing. Maybe it's because there are two different elements combining, but it almost sounds like it's generating new music. And, and I've listened to them for hours and not heard anything that sounds the same. Maybe once in a while I'll hear a few notes on the guitar. There are a couple of riffs on one of them that definitely sound like some Fripp riffs from King Crimson yeah. or a couple of yeah. flute riffs, but nothing more than that. It sounds like it is constantly changing, even though it isn't. But also, it also sounds well-contained. It also has a, 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 a un its own universe. So It doesn't that, sound random. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't sound random. Yeah. Well, that's, that's yeah. very interesting to hear you say that. Um, I mean, I, as I say, I've listened, obviously worked them a lot, and they've been beta tested. I I can't quite get myself to sit and listen to forty five minutes or an hour or two hours because <laughs> I've heard these things till I'm I've had, I've had enough. <laughs> However, having said that, um, things must repeat. But the the I think the clever see I I was obviously very involved in the uh, uh, gathering and um, you know, locating and choosing all the various clips. Um, but the algorithms and the putting the apps together is all Peter Chilvers. So we worked right. out that each of the apps has about an album each of material of Robert and me. There's about 45, 50 minutes of each of us divided up into 15, 16 segments. So you'd probably have to listen for around an hour before things are going to start repeating, which is quite a long time. And but they don't repeat. What repeats is one part well, of that's it. it. That's it. If, it. if there's 16 tracks, you, you have eight times eight, you have 64 possible that's combinations. Right. That's right. And that takes more, it takes multiple hours. Exactly, exactly. So for that reason, it's not going to sound as repetitive. But um, yes, that's right. And, that, and that's great that that is the kind of experience that it really feels like it's just changing, changing, changing and developing. And as you say, you, you hear one, one clip, uh, partner to a different one and it kind of feels different you know because yeah. context is everything you know and the combination yeah. makes the sound so. has this inspired you to work more like this in the future i was saying to doug that it's not eno-esque like generative music it's more cajun just putting things together at random has right. this inspired you to do more in in this vein 
Um, I, I, I don't know. This, this was kind of a specific thing. One because of the sound world and one because of Peter Chilvers. Um, but I've never done anything like this before. It's all very new to me. Um, it's been fun seeing it develop from just, you know, a random email going, what about this as an idea to starting to put clips together to actually hearing it work to then seeing the graphics and everything um, to, to now it's kind of released hearing people's response to it, which has been you know, wonderful and very, very positive. Um, am I interested in more of this sort of stuff? Sure, it's great. Um, I, I have no idea what I would do next. Well, again, what's interesting is that you didn't conceive of the music for this type of a project. So you didn't come in with that context to say, I have to write music to repeat. And that might prompt you to compose pieces that have a certain similarity. So leaving it to someone else to curate the music actually makes the music more interesting because you're not, you're not influenced by the result. Yeah, I mean, the whole process is kind of interesting. And, and when, you know, Robert and I played live, which, you know, we did quite a lot of concerts because it was, it was so improvised. I mean, there were kind of harmonic areas that we'd kind of agree on in certain moods, but it was very open and very free. So it was very much driven by listening to the other and responding. Um, and so there would be areas that would be intentionally quite open so that it would allow them to do something else. And there'll be intentionally things that would specifically respond to them, whether the elements would then work when you put them randomly with others. We didn't really know until, until we tried this, the, the whole thing's pretty experimental really. And it um, is, yeah. it's been a, it's been a, a very enjoyable and interesting process to see how it works and comes together. I once had a, an idea. Now, I once tried something years ago with um, a sort of photographer artist where we recorded two separate things, put them on two different CDs and played them on two different players in different parts of an art gallery. So where you were standing in the gallery, you'd hear bits of both randomly together, which is a kind of real space version on one track of what we've tried to do here on an app. But um, whole different kind of level the way this is. Well, John up. Cage did a lot of things like that. I think his right. piece Fontana Mix was a bunch of radios playing at the same right. time. Right. Um, or he would have two ensembles in different parts of a room playing right. things. Exactly. Um, yes. And 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 that itself is is still intentional. But what's interesting here is that your music was taken from a context and put into a different sort of creative process to create new music that you weren't directly involved in, and the result. Is, is really quite stunning. If I were to hear this without knowing it was an app, I would think, wow, they spent a lot of time in the studio yeah. to do this. <laughs> it, it is one of the interesting parts of it. And it, it, it is an area that I, I think is, is very interesting. We, we, we kind of stumbled across it in a way. Well, I hope Peter does more of this because he does have interesting ideas and, and the way he can develop these things offers a lot of possibilities. It's interesting, you are initially a jazz musician, so improvisation is totally normal for you. The idea of, as you're saying, improvising with Robert Fripp, you on your flutes and him on guitar, it's just normal. But here it takes improvisation to a different yeah. level, even. Yeah, uh, it is. It is. Uh, you're right. It's like it's like the my iPad is improvising, basically, outside what I'm doing. Um, yeah, exactly. But it was interesting. Well, there was a stage of the development of the app where Peter was listening through to, you know, an early version. And he was saying to me, he said, it's really interesting. There are times when one or both clips stop and there's a kind of pause between that and the next clip. And it makes this kind of almost like intentional silence. 
and he said i really like it it's like on a concert when there's a moment of pause and a breath before the next one and i didn't intend it but it's rather good and I, it works well and i thought and i listened and there are these moments where that does happen and it does kind of allow you to breathe and you're saying that's not intentional i thought it was yeah. because you get to a point as you say where there's silence for a bit and i thought okay well Peter has developed this so that these clips end at a certain point yeah. and he fades out and there's silence and then it picks up. I thought that's what was happening. Put it this way, I'd say it's intentional that it's there now, <laughs> but uh -huh. when it was okay. kind of in development, it was okay. kind of happened and, and I think Peter went, hey, that's pretty good, we'll leave that in. But it wasn't sort of necessarily the original intention where you might think I'll just roll one into the next, into the next. I think that does add something to it. As, as you say, like a pause in a concert, it's true that one thing about reflection is that it is relentless. As long as you've got it on, it does sort of fade down and fade up, but it never goes silent. Whereas here, I thought that was, oh, okay, this is the time to take a break. I'll, I'll go flip the record now, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. No, I mean, we, we both really like it, but as I say, it's obviously intentional that it's there now, but right. it was something we kind it of was discovered an accident, during originally. the process. A happy accident, yes. So you, you have a, a vast experience and you play with a huge number of musicians and bands that are in my iTunes library. I didn't know before that it was you playing that foot solo on Adventures in a Yorkshire Landscape on the Bill Nelson video. I'm on the, the DVD. Yeah, I've been a B Bill Nelson fan since Bebop Deluxe back in the 70s. I buy all his records. And that concert was recorded what? Do you really? There are it, a lot of them. I know there's like six a year now. But he's he's yeah. one of those artists who I really appreciate, and I'm happy to support him. He makes, what, 500 copies of each record, and he lives as a journeyman yeah. musician, churning out these records, and, and, and it's just basically to support his musicianship that I buy them, as well as enjoying the music. He reminds me, he reminds me of... Robert Fripp and, and Bill Nelson seem to be very similar sort of fellows, um, country gentleman-esque and that sort of thing. They are. They're both true gentlemen. And, of course, Bill Nelson was on Robert Fripp's DGM label for a while. Yeah. Uh, right. But it's interesting. I had a, an email that I'm doing a Bill Nelson, a concert with Bill Nelson at the beginning of December this year. Um, for the first one we've done for quite a while, we've got this sort of improvising trio, and the plan is to do it as part of a kind of Bill Nelson convention. Do you play mostly sax with that? Is that mostly a sax then? Um, flute, no, flute and sax, flute and sax. Um, but yeah, I've done quite a few things with him, and I was, you know, very pleased in a way that that Metropolis DVD and CD came out because, you know, he's written so many great songs, and he's such a great guitarist. It's it's really nice that, you know, a lot of people can see it and appreciate it and hear it, and get it gets introduced to some some new people. But yeah, no, playing Adventures in the Yorkshire Landscape with him. And Ships in the Night and, you know, Panic in the World and all those great songs. It's great stuff. So you went to university in Manchester. You are of an age to have been there in the sort of, not the early Factory Records day, but, you know, the heyday of Manchester music. You played jazz, but were you influenced by all of that, you know, New Order, Happy Mondays, um, Daruti column, things like that? I was, I did, I, was, I did go to the Hacienda in Manchester. That was the tail end of the Hacienda days. Um, I liked uh, some of that new wave uh, music. I particularly liked uh, Magazine, actually, and some of the, um, the Joy Division stuff. Uh, Bill's Red Noise, um, which was also influenced by the whole new wave thing. Um, I liked the early Echo and the Bunnyman stuff, which kind of came out of that. So I, I, 
I liked the kind of energy and a lot of the songs of that uh, kind of era. But did it actually. influence you musically in uh, any way? Did it influence me? It didn't be, I don't think it did. I, I think it's an era. There's a lot of music I do that is has a connection to music I love. Obviously, 70s stuff, prog stuff, you know, Robert, Brian, etc. But the whole new wave thing, which I do like quite a lot of, I've not really made any music with any connection to that. Although the only one I think that there was a connection was the very first Stephen Wilson solo album in Sahentes. Um, he openly said he was strongly influenced by that music, the Joy Division, the Cure, you know, magazine, etc. So when he made that first album, there was quite a bit of an influence of that. And I was involved in that album, played on that. So that's probably the closest I've been that or some Bill stuff. Um, Who are your sax heroes then? I mean, when you were learning to play, what did you like to listen to? Okay, so I, I mean, I listen to a lot of music. <laughs> so huh. I'd say the uh, influences on the jazz. I mean, my main men for jazz are Stan Getz, who you still can't get more gorgeous than at the sound. So I adore Stan Getz. Um, I love John Coltrane. Um, um, I, I'm strongly probably influenced and impressed by Michael Brecker. You can't avoid Michael Brecker. Of the older school, the swing and feel of Dexter Gordon, I love. Um, in the more contemporary area, um, some of the players with Miles, like um, when Miles came back in the 80s, there was a sax player called Bill Evans, who was fantastic with Miles Davis. The other Bill, the other Evans. Bill Evans. Since he's been with Miles Davis, yeah. I've not been so interested in what he's done. But when he was with Miles, he was absolutely unbelievable. Um but, you know, all good ones. I, I get a lot from all good players. So whether it's, you know, Paul Desmond or David Sanborn or um, Sonny Rollins, you know, there's so much to get from some, from many of them. But probably my go-to players were Stan Getz, Michael Brecker, John Coltrane, Dexter Gordon. And I have to say, uh, Tubby Hayes, who was a wonderful British player, uh, did an album called Mexican Green that I love. And there's some interesting John Sermon stuff. Um, and also Mel Collins. Mel Collins is playing on Islands. I, I die for that. I mean, Mel yep. Collins on Islands and, in fact, that early stuff is, I just love it. And you you, you may be aware, as a, as a King Crimson fan, they've, they've, um, they've released a, a box set called Sailor's Tales, which is like 25 CDs of the Mel Collins, Bosborough, Ian Wallace band, live, basically. And there's so much wonderful Mel Collins playing and all of that. I, I lap it up. <laughs> so, so Mel Collins. See, just before the show, I was talking about those box sets, that one and the Road to Red, etc. Saying to Doug, you know, I don't know if I want to spend that much money, but it's really tempting. And there you go. You're going to make me use my credit card on Amazon they're, again. They're really good. I mean, I find the thing about those sets is the time. I don't have the time. I mean, because the Travis and Fripp stuff all comes out on the same label. Declan from the label kindly sends me to sends them to me, you know, and each one is kind of 25 CDs a pop. Yeah. I don't have that time in my life. Well, that's, down. that's something we've talked about on the podcast several times about, we have so much music that we just can't listen to it anymore. In, in the early days, when you had a hundred records, you would listen to those hundred records over and over. And now when you have a thousand, 2000, 10,000 records or, or, 45 million tracks that you can stream, yes. you know, it's it's harder to focus on on specific records and listen to them seriously. And in a way, just to come back to your apps, that kind of 
gives the apps a certain uniqueness of the fact that you don't have to think about a record and a yes. song that you can just put the app on and know that you're yes. going to be in a certain sound world yes. for a certain amount of time as long as you want yes no i, I mean i i like that idea because as you say it can be overwhelming putting cds on and off even streaming when you go to a streaming service you think what should i listen to i can listen to anything you go exactly i can listen to anything i don't know what to- <laughs> I don't know what to put on. And then or even if you put one on, then you have to kind of think again in five minutes or you can make a playlist, etc. So the idea of just putting something on and a certain vibe, I think, you know, I would hope that would be appealing to some. So in in other projects of yours, I believe you're currently or very soon touring with the reformed version of Soft Machine. Yes, that's very exciting. That's right. Yes. New album. And you've been doing this since 2006. Yes. The the it's um it was originally called Soft Machine Legacy, um, not because it was a different set of people. It was all the others were all in Soft Machine. And legally, we could have called it Soft Machine. But for various reasons, to keep one step removed and whatever, it was called Soft Machine Legacy. But about three years ago, they said, you know what? <laughs> we don't need to do that. We can just call it Soft Machine. So we called it Soft Machine um, and been touring under that name. We've just recorded the first album, studio album, under the name Soft Machine, as opposed to something else. And because of that, it makes it a little bit more kind of interesting and real. And so with the release of the album that's coming out in September, we're going to be touring Europe and America and Britain and promoting the new album. So uh, that's very exciting because I, you know... I I noticed you said Europe and Britain. (laughs) (laughs) There's a conversation. (laughs) Yeah, no, that we won't go there. Yeah, I'm going to see if you're playing anywhere near. I'm, as I said, Stratford-upon-Avon, so maybe you're playing Birmingham, which everyone goes to. That would be great to I'm see. I'm not sure this... We have played the Robin in Bilston several times, but on the November UK tour, I'm not sure where we are playing in the Midlands. Hopefully somewhere, because someone else asked. But I'd have to check the itinerary. I, I'm not sure. And, and so what about more Travis and Fripp performances? I, I kick myself when I look at some of the dates, knowing that I was in this country not that far what did you do? Something in Cheltenham, another one in Bath, yes. so things not far from me, and that I didn't know about them. I need to see you guys live. Are you going to get together again? I hope so. I, I mean, Robert's very busy with King Crimson at the moment. There, you'll be aware of the King Crimson tour, the big tours. Uh, you know, yeah, a lot going on there. So Robert's really concentrating on that uh, for the time being and for the foreseeable future. But um, I, we don't know. There's so no plans at the moment. But in a way, it's a kind of small mobile unit, as they say. And and should he want to, we would we would be able to um, put something together and do some more concerts. I think since 2009, 2010, when we did quite a quite a lot of concerts, you know, obviously there's a lot more awareness of the music that we make and and of the you know the duo generally. So I'd hope that sometime in the future we will uh, go out and perform live again. Well, buy some more cakes. Theo Travis thanks very much for joining us this has been a big pleasure and everyone go out and buy these apps links in the show notes this is just wonderful music thanks very much it was terrific having you thank you very much been a pleasure and by way of a program note we'd like to let everyone know that Peter Chilvers the developer of the three Travis and Fripp apps will be our guest in our next episode next week All right, everybody thought it would be a good idea to present our next tracks now. Kirk, what are you listening to? This week, I think I'm going to go back to my favorite King Crimson album. It's Red in 1974. It was the last studio recording of the early version of King Crimson. They didn't get back together in a different form until, what was it, 1981 or something like that. 
it has what I think is the best King Crimson song ever, which is Starless, which is the last song on the album. It opens with another great song called Red. And there's even a song called Providence, which was recorded at the Palace Theater in Providence, Rhode Island, Doug's hometown, on the 30th of June, 1974. Red is an extraordinary album. It's it's violent. It's strong and powerful. It's rich. It's only essentially three musicians, Robert Fripp on guitar, Mellotron, John Wetton bass vocals and lyrics, and Bill Bruford on drums and percussion, with some additional personnel, Mel Collins, who, as Theo mentioned earlier, playing soprano saxophone on Starless, Ian McDonald playing alto saxophone, and David Cross on violin. It is this power trio of extraordinary music. It's Some bits of it sound like heavy metal. Some bits of it are almost ambient with the Mellotron and Starless. It, it to me, is the epitome of what King Crimson, the first generation of King Crimson, was. Doug, what about you? Our discussion today about randomizing loops of music reminded me of a sonic phenomena that I occasionally experience, and maybe you have too. Now, I'm sure we've all experienced this, and that is you are very used to the way an album sounds on your stereo. And when you go to somebody else's house and hear the exact same album, it may sound different. In fact, you may even hear different things in it. You may, for instance, hear backing vocals or guitar parts or horn parts that you never heard before because for some reason or another, your delivery system at home doesn't provide adequate frequency response or whatever. I experience a very unusual effect with Fatboy Slim's You've Come a Long Way Baby and probably other albums of his as well. What happens is if I play it on one system that I'm not used to, I start to hear harmonics that I didn't hear before. Even little harmonic melody lines that aren't even there will pop up depending on what audio system I'm listening to it on. Now, I suspect it's because of the way Fatboy Slim produces music. He takes very tiny samples and loops them, drum loops, bass loops, organ loops, keyboard loops, vocal loops, and they all come from disparate places. They all come from differently mastered sources. And I suspect that when he puts them all together, there's just no accounting or accommodating the different ways that his source materials were mastered. So depending on the, the audio system you're playing it on, one audio system may not hear the frequency response and the dissonance and, and, and all of that sort of thing that it varies from machine to machine. It's really a fascinating thing. So if I come to your house and I have a copy of this CD, let me listen to it because it could sound new and fresh to me. Fatboy Slim, You've Come a Long Way Baby is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.